Church, we are on page one of our Bibles, Genesis chapter one, verse one, and you guys know we're going to look at the first four chapters of Genesis uh, for the entire semester. So we got six months in a little bit of space, and we're going to take our time. Nobody's in a rush here. There are big truths here. There are big things to see and hear and be shaped by, so we're going to take this real slow. And so like Devin said, we're going to finish verse one. Instead of me reading it to you, can we all recite Genesis 1-1 together? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, we address you as creator and as God, supreme, bright, glorious, majestic, authoritative, over all things seen and unseen, and even our little lives individually before you with whatever we brought in to the service this morning and whatever we face when we leave here, all is in your hands as creator, sustainer, inheritor of all things. So we bow in worship. We bow in praise. We bow to learn humbly before you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, every time we crack open a new book of the Bible, whether we do that here in a sermon or you do that in your own Bible reading, it's important to ask the question, who is writing this, who are they writing to, and why are they writing? Who's writing this and who's receiving this And what's the occasion? You know, we kind of treat the Bible like a textbook that's going to give us doctrine, and it does feed us and feed us theological truths, but we're actually intercepting mail that went from one person to another, and it's important to understand who's writing and why. Imagine yourself transported back to middle school, and you're minding your own business, when a note drops on your desk and it says, see me after class. Does authorship matter? Does it matter who wrote the note? If I know the words, if I understand what they mean, does it matter who wrote it? Well, what if it's my teacher? Then I'm in trouble. Or what if it's the class bully? Then I'm really in trouble but what if it's the pretty brunette from homeroom, Susie? Well, then this is the best news of the day. The words are there, but without that broader context of who's writing to whom and if it's even supposed to go to me or somebody else, all of that matters for interpreting rightly. And that's why when we open up Genesis 1 this morning, a note falls on our desk and it says, in the beginning... And we got to ask the question, well, who is writing to whom? The first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they are written, the essential author and editor of these books is none other than Moses himself. And he's writing these books, and particularly Genesis, to the people of Israel as they leave slavery in Egypt. 
Now, it's important to get our minds around this because we're secondary audience. That's the first audience, and these things are being written for our part, a particular purpose. And so let's get that scene in our minds. Moses to Israel coming out of Egypt. We know that Israel, the people of God, were in brutal slavery in Egypt. They were subject to back-breaking work and beatings And this was such a brutal regime. We even know from Exodus that when the people of Israel grew too big, that uh, Egypt uh, put infanticide in place. Any male born to the Hebrews was to be uh, aborted as a baby. This was a brutal regime. And it wasn't just physical oppression. It was spiritual oppression too. Just by living in Egypt for so long, one couldn't help but think and believe like an Egyptian too. Now friend, do you even know what it's like to live in a nation that is hostile to faith, that ridicules God, that wants nothing to do with your religion, that is doing everything that is right in their own eyes, that that when you spend time with this God, it feels like culture's stream is moving in one direction and everything this book is telling you is moving in an opposite direction. Do you know what it's like to be in a hostile place where you can't imagine, am I crazy or are they crazy? Of course we know something of that. Of course we know what it's like to be a believer in this nation. We know something of that, but Israel knew it all too well. Israel suffers in Egypt for 400 years. And that's a long time. That's a long public school education to bend and warp your mind around something. I'm not making a comment about schooling. I'm making a comment about Egypt. That's a long time to feed from the trough of what Egypt is serving up. 400 years of hearing you are nothing but a worthless slave? 400 years of hearing you are only worth the quota of book bricks that you can make? 400 years of hearing that the Egyptians, they're the superior race and you, the Israelites, you are the inferior race. 400 years of being taught about Egyptian and ancient Near East faith and gods who are as brutal as your slave masters who don't care about you. They don't see you. They only made you as an afterthought to serve them and their appetites. That's what you hear year after year after year. That's what your dad heard. That's what your granddad heard. That's what your great-grandfather heard. And I think each of us would like to imagine ourselves as like an island that could stand against the wave of culture, like let Egypt say what it's gonna say, but I will stand for the faith of my forefather Abraham in a strange place. But friend, we struggle now. We struggle here. We struggle to be a believer in this moment, in this nation, and say what God says is true and let all else be called a liar. I'm not sure we would have stood a chance. No wonder God has to appear in Exodus chapter three and completely reintroduce himself. Hello, my name is Yahweh. Y'all forgot. You don't even know. You don't even know my name. 
he introduces himself. So we get this note that has fallen on our middle school desks this morning and it comes first from God to Israel as they're emerging from centuries of slavery. And so we get to listen in and hear how God would reintroduce himself to his people that came from such a brutal background. And because we get to do that, we actually get to hear how God would introduce himself to us and the chief things he, wanna, he wants us to hear about him. Well, the first thing that God chooses to say about himself to Israel and to us is that he made everything out of nothing. That he made everything out of nothing. Now, I understand what that means And then I want to understand why that's important. What does it mean that he made everything out of nothing? Why is it important for us to grasp that? So verse one, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? What is God saying when he says that? Well, actually a lot of ink has been spilled over that verb create because it can mean two different things. It can mean to make something out of nothing, but it can also mean to make something out of the materials that you have available to you. And that's an important distinction because we said last week when we began the series that when we read in the beginning, that's not God's beginning. God is eternal. God exists beyond what happens in Genesis chapter one. But now my question this morning is, well, what about the material world? God is eternal Is matter eternal too? And I don't think you can answer that question just from the verb itself because it can mean both things. It can mean create something out of nothing. It can also mean to to renew something. Psalm 50, create in me a clean heart. But it is interesting that this verb is only ever used of God. God is the only subject of this verb in our Hebrew Bible. It is secured for him because there is another perfectly good word in Hebrew to mean to make, and that's used of God and of man, making things with material that is available. So something special is happening here to choose that verb. And I think the context agrees and I think the rest of scripture agrees that this verse is saying that God is making everything out of nothing. When God says in verse three, let there be lights, there wasn't lights and then there was lights, God made something out of nothing. When God says in verse 14, let there be lights, there wasn't a sun or a moon or stars. They didn't exist and then they did. God made something out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 is in effect saying in the beginning, God made everything. He made everything. And the New Testament readily agrees with that interpretation. We heard Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There wasn't any material, God made it. John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. 
Finally, Revelation 4, 11, worthy are you, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. There was nothing. God spoke everything into existence, seen and unseen. That's the truth. What's the application? Why does that matter? Why do we even care whether material world existed or didn't exist and God made it or God refashioned it? Why is that so important? Why would that be the first thing God says in the Bible? It's hard to even put into words how much that matters and how much that changes everything of how we think about God. Because God in the very first verse is telling us I'm actually not a part of this creation. I didn't come from this creation. I didn't even just exist alongside the material world for all time. He is telling us that he is outside, above, beyond, wholly responsible for everything seen and unseen. There's not a speck of the physical or spiritual world that does not come from the hand of God and does not fall under the authority of God. God's not just like a bigger version of us. He's like Devin, but he's taller and wiser. There's no comparison in this world because he didn't come from here and there's no analogy here for him. He is wholly outside of this thing apart from creation. And Romans 1 reminds us that because he made everything out of nothing, God is showing us a bunch of truths about himself. Just by doing this, just by displaying this, just by waking up this morning and seeing the rain and seeing the clouds, Romans 1 is saying it is screaming, not just that God exists, but truths about God. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when we think God has made everything out of nothing, and Romans 1 says that's going to teach you a bunch about God, I just want to pick up three attributes of God, three things about God that Genesis 1-1 screams by its very nature. If this is true about the world, then these three things are true about God himself. Number one, I want to talk about God's aseity. God's aseity. I love using that word because it's fun to use and nobody knows what it means. It it makes you look smart. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. And aseity means that God is wholly self-sufficient that he's uncreated, that he's independent, that he's full, that he's satisfied within himself, that he is in need of nothing, that he himself never changes nor can be changed. He is wholly self-sufficient. That's God's aseity. Now, since we're creatures and not a creator, and since you and I have so many wants and so many needs, and since we're dependent on so many other things, and since we have so much to learn and so much to grow in, it's hard for us as creatures to wrap our minds around a being who doesn't change and doesn't need 
to change. Our family was sitting at the dinner table this week and we had talked last week about God existing before the beginning. God's around before Genesis chapter one. And we just try to imagine as a family, what, what does that even look like? I mean, how can your mind go to the fact that God's there, but the world is not there? And as creatures, we found it very hard to not imagine God alone in outer space, in the cold, dark, by himself, and nothing to do. Isn't that a creature talking? I have no idea, and it proves how little I know. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, 5 that we read last week? And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I'm here on earth. I'm going to die and rise again from the dead. And when I do, and when I ascend, and when I am rejoined with you, I want the glory we had self-sufficiently bright and glorious and majestic together, one triune God for eternity past, wholly satisfied in myself. That's God's aseity. He doesn't need this. He is satisfied in himself. That's number one, God's aseity. Number two is God's omnipotence. God's omnipotence. This is what Romans 1 means when it says God's eternal power. Omnipotence means that God has all power. He has all power. And we're going to come back to this again and again, of course, as we march through chapter one. But my goodness, does this verse not scream the power of God? Remember that crazy scene with the disciples when they're on the boat and Jesus is asleep and a storm comes up and they think they're going to die. They're being tossed about and they grab Jesus and say, help us. And Jesus stands on the deck and silences the storm and what happens? The disciples are terrified. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Can you imagine taking your family to Folly Beach and the four-foot Atlantic waves are just slapping against the shore and somebody walks out on the beach and says, stop it, and it goes still? That's terrifying. Who can command the winds and the waves? And God in Genesis 1 is saying, winds and waves, hold my beer. Earth, solar system, galaxies, the universe itself. God is flexing his power. This is incredible. This is incredible. God is showing, this is my power. Behold what I can do simply with a word. He doesn't change. He doesn't need anything. He has all power. He can do anything that he wants to do. Which brings us to our third and final point. Think about God's graciousness in chapter 1, verse 1. Now we think about salvation as a grace and it is and we're gonna sing about that as a church for the rest of this life and all in the next life. Salvation is a grace. But do you know that creation itself 
is a manifold grace too. Even if we've come through the valley of the shadow of death, to be sitting here alive, living, breathing in our right minds, that's a grace. Everybody just take a deep breath. That is God's sustaining, creating, upholding grace in our lives. One writer put it this way, the doctrine of creation is not just the fact that the world came into existence, but that it did not need to. Y'all know that? It's not a amazing only that God made the world. It's almost doubly amazing that God didn't even have to make the world in the first place. This is what Paul is trying to say in Acts 17 when he's preaching. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Creation is not for him, it's for us. Right, church? Creation is not for him, it is for us. God is the giver, we are the receiver. When we wake up in the morning, we wake up with arms outstretched to receive God's daily mercies Because living is a grace, having a purpose and a meaning in my life is a grace, being sustained throughout the day, all of it is grace upon grace. This is what God is speaking to ex-slaves of Israel and ex-slaves of the church who have come out of sin and Satan himself. He is silencing false voices that say you're worthless, and you're nobody, and you don't amount to much, and you're not valuable, and Genesis 1-1 says, shh, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God didn't have to do this, and yet in his grace, he made you, each of you, in the way that he has made you and is delighted in you and doesn't just make you but then reveals himself to you. If you're sitting here this morning, he is speaking to you from his word, you personally, to know him and receive him and be showered by his grace upon grace. Creation is grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, what a grace to be made by you, known by you, delivered by you, in worship of you. I pray that we would very humbly go from here and happily look upward and celebrate the one whose divine power and aseity and grace screams from everything seen and unseen and that we will live lives of worship unto you and that that would be the best life possible. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.